Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, listeners. You're listening to Movie Oubliette, the continental spanning podcast with me, Dan, in the midst of a cinema extravaganza here in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, returning to cinema for the first time in over a year in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> in this podcast, we delve deep into genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because a little bit of gothic horror helps us sleep better at night. Mm, does yeah. it? <laughs> Conrad, how are you today? I'm very happy, yes, because I got to go outside and uh, yeah, open do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So things are a little bit better here, but we're being very careful because there are so many variants. And uh, so, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. But right. at least I got to go to the cinema. Yeah. Have you been into Cambridge? I haven't been into town for a very, very long time. No, I haven't been there for a year. <laughs> right. <laughs> so okay. I still work there theoretically. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I haven't remote. been into the centre of town. <laughs> very, very strange times that we live in. So you're in the middle of a cinema extravaganza. I've only seen one movie since we opened up. What have you been doing? Well, because uh, the cinemas, the cinemas have actually been open for a while, but uh, at mm. the moment they're really trying to push more patrons into the cinema. Mm. So for a week, um, our local cinema is doing $5 movies. Ooh. So, taking advantage of it, uh, yeah, we've, we've booked in three movies, so we've already seen two, the third one tomorrow. Wow. We saw the film Songbird oh, yeah. uh, that I mentioned to you. Uh, in the Minnesota, yeah. Yes, in the Minnesota. Terrible. Uh, <laughs> just the worst movie I've seen at the movies in a oh, long no. time. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, wow. even though it wasn't directed by Michael Bay, it was only produced by him. It felt like a Michael Bay movie. It felt like Transformers, oh. but with COVID. <laughs> so oh, great. Just awful writing, <laughs> terrible <laughs> plot holes, terrible acting, just nonstop music, lots of ridiculously sort of stylistic shots that got irritating after a while because you couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, just the worst. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I'll cross that one off yeah, my list. In that no case. one should ever see the movie Songbird. It's it's the worst. We're trying to support our local cinema. So one of the things that they advertised is that you could hire one of their screens to show any film that you like mm -hmm. uh, for a fairly sizable sum, but not a ridiculous amount of money. So secret just between you and I and our listeners. <laughs> yeah. I have hired a screen so that my mum and I can go and watch 1917 Ooh. again <laughs> next weekend. <laughs> You're obsessed. I, uh, this is going to be the 10th time, but that appeals to my OCD as well. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Round numbers. Yes. Yeah. So I am actually looking forward to it and I think she'll be very moved. So Yeah. Hopefully she doesn't listen to this episode. No. Well, <laughs> th I think this episode will be out after uh, we have done this, okay, so yeah, yes, it should be right. fine. Should be fine. <laughs> don't don't say anything, listeners. Okay. <laughs> uh, speaking of listeners, are they talking to us in our socials? Uh, yes, we heard from one Laureen Landon on Maniac Cop. <laughs> oh yes. Star of, who was feeling a little aggrieved because we hadn't mentioned her in our previous socials. And when we did actually put up the clip where we talked about how great she was mm. as Teresa in the movie, she put up a message that said, Thanks for the very kind words you made my year. Heart, heart, heart emoji, fire, clap, 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 love hearts. <laughs> <laughs> love and gratitude to you. So... Bless her. She's a very demonstrative person, clearly. So that's yeah. lovely. <laughs> oh, glad she appreciated it. Yeah. 
And on our previous episode on Night of the Comet, we heard from Clunker Slim, who said it is without doubt one of the best overlooked movies of the 80s. I think it's on Tubi for free right now, or I saw it somewhere else recently. So it oh, is out there for people yeah. who want to catch up with it. Yeah, the Tubi uh, selection in Australia is still the worst of the worst, so it's not... <laughs> On Tubi down here. <laughs> uh, Scott Scotch Howard said, Kelly is fantastic in it, as well as Barbara Crampton talking about Chopping Mall, oh, which right. we haven't seen. Yeah. It's definitely a fun 80s popcorn movie, and I was totally unaware that it was shot in the same mall. <laughs> right, yeah. So now I need to watch them both again soon. So, oh, yes. Yeah. You could have your Kelly Maroney Mall double bill if you wish. Ah, of course, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever done that. Watch two movies set in the same location, like back to back. That'd be quite interesting. No. Chopping Mall, I noticed, is on Prime in the UK at the moment, so ah, it is available right. for no additional cost if you're a subscriber. On the arcade game Tempest, Will It Work said, My older brother's favourite game. When Replicade first announced their mini version of it, I ordered one for his birthday. Nothing beats a colour vector monitor. So, <laughs> right. there you go. Yeah, I still don't understand it. <laughs> no, all those yeah. blinking lines didn't <laughs> compute for you. <laughs> no, no. It always makes me think of Tron as well, all of those glowing oh, primary yes. coloured lines. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. I don't understand those those really old RPG games as well where you had to type in commands like walk, <laughs> walk to the door, open door, enter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to play those. Oh, did you? Oh, wow. Yeah. Go north. Move north. Walk north. You just kept trying until you found what the actual command was. Yeah. 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 Was... I remember just always trying to like... Hit people, slap shopkeeper. <laughs> I know that it was quite a fun thing at school to sort of type obscenities in there and see whether mm. they'd programmed any kind of response, but usually they didn't. No, of course not. <laughs> so, Conrad, we have a little bit of news to share with listeners. Oh, yes. We're involved in Iconicon or Iconic Con. I'm not sure how you're meant to pronounce it, but yes, they're retro blasting and a, a load of other 80s pop culture YouTube channels are organising this fantastic online convention in July. And if you would like to come along and see myself and Melinda, Kelly Maroney and Catherine Mary Stewart live oh. online going over Night of the Comet and Chopping Mall and The Last Starfighter and anything else they will put up with questions about for the 30,000th time, <laughs> bless them, then do come and join us on Iconicon or Iconicon. Con mm -hmm. I'm not sure. It's a convention and it's iconic. That's yeah. the thing. <laughs> you don't even have to leave your house. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> and neither do we to... Uh, Look at our next film, because it's right there in the oubliette, Dan. What's it going to be? Oh, yes. I'll just go grab it. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of birds in here. Are you sure it's not bats? They could be. <laughs> they sound like them. Oh, look. It's another me. Well, that's weird. Do you have the film with you? I have everything. Oh, how profound. Okay, I'll just take that. <laughs> oh, I throw my story to the wind. Okay, I'm back. That's a strange experience. It is, it is. Life-changing. <laughs> so, of course, what do you have for us? Well, today we will be covering the 2012 horror drama Byzantium. Mm. It's uh, directed by Neil Jordan, uh, written by Moira Buffini, and mm. it stars Saoirse Ronan, Gemma Arterton, Johnny Lee Miller, Caleb Landry-Jones, Daniel Mays, Sam Riley, and Maria Doyle-Kennedy. Ooh, nice cast. And what's it about? Yes, well, spanning 200 years, Byzantium is a story of a girl, Ella, and her mother, Clara, trying to make ends meet in present-day Britain? Is it Britain or Ireland? Not sure. Not sure. <laughs> but, oh, wait, did I mention they're vampires? Well, after beheading a guy, draining the life out of an elderly neighbour and setting fire to their flat, the two flee to a remote coastal town. Once there, Ella befriends a local waiter and Clara starts a brothel. 
<laughs> just your usual family antics ensue. Murder, <laughs> prostitution, gothic oh. flashbacks, and creative writing. <laughs> Meanwhile, the pointed nail of justice pursues them, escalating to a fiery conclusion. Let's sink our teeth into Byzantium. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. After the break. Let's do it. <laughs> And we're back for Byzantium, a 2012 vampire film directed by Neil Jordan, starring Gemma Arterton and Sir Ronan. Dan, had you seen this one before? No, I hadn't. So, yeah, this is going to be a double blind. It is. Double blind. One thing I did note when watching this was uh, this is only the second vampire movie that we've covered on the podcast mm. after Vamp. Of course. So, yeah, yeah because I, I actually thought it was the first, but then, yes, we, we did Vamp, which is, you know, it's called Vamp. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's about vampires. So, yeah, I had a lot of sort of expectations going into this, being a vampire movie. Vampire movies and zombie movies, you have a certain amount of mm. things to expect, I guess. Yeah. And And this movie wasn't the modern vampire movie I expected. And it's not fully the sort of romanticised gothic horror movie either, which you might have expected because Neil Jordan, of course, made it in the big time straight after doing The Crying Game, which was an independent movie that got lots of awards and lots of attention. His big break in Hollywood was Interview with the Vampire, the mm. adaptation of the Anne Rice novel with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. So you can't get much bigger than that. <laughs> And that was a very gothic, romantic, yes. flouncy shirts with lots of eroticism and homoeroticism. So you kind of expected, okay, it's just returning to that territory maybe for a quick buck. But no, it's not like that at all, really. It's not um, very similar to Interview with a Vampire. It's quite a unique flavour, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, it did still have elements of that sort of gothic horror and that sense of... Um theatrics almost mm. i mean not as overly dramatic but they had the flashbacks back to i guess 200 years earlier yeah uh, and there was you know a, a sense of period drama to it as well mm. but it wasn't drenched in angst like a lot of these modern uh, vampire adaptations are like i mean even like buffy the vampire slayer or the twilight movies oh yeah or any of the numerous vampire teen tv shows that seem to keep coming out <laughs> there was a sense of realism i guess yeah they were teenagers but they weren't in high school setting they were sort of travelers mm. on the run from the other vampires <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah this kind of brotherhood yeah there is a, a romance in the movie between a 200 year old in ella saoirse ronan mm. and caleb landry jones who plays frank in the movie caleb of course we've come across in antiviral yes fascinating actor mm. very intense in terms of his um, commitment to creating a very distinctive and compelling character and of course saoirse is well known for being a fan fantastic actress at this point as well. She hadn't quite hit the big time. She'd been in Atonement, which I think had gotten a lot of attention. Mm. But I think it was Lady Bird and Brooklyn and... Little Women. Yeah, and Little Women, things like this that really sort of broke her out into the big time, yeah. Mm, mm. But, yeah, they're not sort of angsty, groany, stare-at-their-feet, mumblecore type of yeah. people. They're <laughs> the sense of being trapped in this never-ending purgatory seems to weigh heavy on Saoirse Ronan. She does seem kind of an old soul and world-weary in a way and a little bit bored, really, mm. of being a vampire yeah. and certainly living the life that her mother has created for her to keep her safe because they're on the run from this brotherhood of vampires and it seems to be like an all-boys club and no girls allowed, so they're trying to track the two of them down and get rid of this horrible, pesky female yeah. contingent that's burst on the scene that they don't really approve of. So they've created this insular world for themselves and this romance strikes up between two of the characters, 
during it, but it's not really weighed down by that mopey, mumblecore, teenage dance that you saw in the Twilight movies that were really big at the time. I mean, Byzantium struck right in the middle of that series being really big, mm, but sure. unfortunately didn't seem to attract any of the same audience because although it cost about 8 million euros to make, I think it made $800,000 in the box office. So it I don't know how. That's kind of vanished. <laughs> Terrible marketing or bad timing? That's Oh, that's shocking. It is, yeah. It's, it's a really poor performance. It's quite a compelling story, I think, although it's quite languid. You know, it sort of takes its yes. time in creating a mood. Yeah. Yeah. hangs on scenes you know like you'll see a scene of Ella she plays the piano she's had years to practice so you'll have long language scenes of her just playing the piano just to get the sort of weight of time settle on you as a viewer I think just to give a sense of what their life is like and then this is sort of punctuated by sudden action scenes where they're chased and have to get away from these angry men yeah <laughs> yeah it definitely is much more of a drama mm. than you would expect from a vampire flick uh, there are only two action scenes really the mm. start and the end yeah and they're they're pretty quick i mean they're poor they're pretty intense though mm. that first one shocking <laughs> i was yeah. like astounded by that scene especially it's denouement <laughs> oh yeah i mean is, is that an actual garage or is that a cheese slicer <laughs> i think it's a cheese slicer that she takes that guy's head off with yeah wow yeah, yeah, very <laughs> bloody, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, and then it just turns into this kind of drama, sort of almost like a road movie. They're traveling, they settle in this coastal town. Mm. Ella meets a waiter and Clara starts a brothel Yeah, somehow. I don't know, she just meets a guy at a fair and just takes over his establishment. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> just the power of feminine charm, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the film is populated by a lot of lonely, womenless men. Mm -hmm. And Clara uses that to her advantage. So Noel has just recently suffered the loss of his mother and he was trying to run his mother's seaside guest house for her, but he's just run it into the ground because he hasn't got a head for business. Mm. And his mum's died and now he's just got this dilapidated seaside hotel called Byzantium, which yes. is where the movie's title comes from, but it's also the name of a fall. And Greek Empire, I think. So it's all very symbolic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she meets him and insinuates herself into his life and brings these women in away from the men, the pimps that are sort of exploiting them. These, I think they're sort of Eastern European women and brings them into the brothel where they're clean and safe to run a very successful business. Mm. So she preys upon lonely men who lack mother figures or who lack love in some way in order to survive, yeah. I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess it harkens back to her own sort of previous life before she became a vampire and working in a brothel. Mm. So I guess it's like her trade. I guess it's all she knows. It is, yeah. And by comparison, Saoirse Ronan's character, Ella, plays this angel of mercy who only vampirizes elderly people who are on the verge of death in some mm, cases. Yeah. And again, you get a man who had an unrequited love. I think he was in love with his brother's wife all of his life, but never told her. Mm. So just another lonely man missing a woman and Sersha comes along and relieves him of his life so that he can end it because he's had enough. Mm. That's the way that she lives her life. She gives people peace Whereas Clara, I think, is an avenging angel by comparison. Yeah. She's out to get all the men who exploit women. Mm. Yeah, interesting dynamic. Yes, exactly. Mm. It's interesting, the take on the vampire genre. Yeah, Going into any vampire movie, it definitely, my first question is, like, what are the rules here? You know, you've got your usual rules of vampires. You know, they can't go into sunlight and they have to suck blood to live and uh, sleep in coffins and they can turn into bats. Yeah. So most of that, not in this. No. Uh, they do need to suck blood, but they don't seem to have the vampire teeth. They no. have this funny nail 
yes. like a thumbnail that grows. And that's <laughs> yeah. their sort of weapon of choice. Yeah. And they're not affected by sunlight. They can't fly. They can't turn into bats. So it's pretty much just the lust for blood. It is. I think they're also quite durable. I mean, certainly Clara jumps off the top of a roof and carries on running without having seemingly incurred any kind of injury at all. So I think it does rid them of any diseases they have because it's quite often used in the film to uh, save characters from a certain death. I think Clara certainly was dying of something. Right, yes, yes. At the point when she was turned. And the All Boys Club was trying to turn Johnny Lee Miller's character, Riven, who is also dying of something horrible. Mm. They use it for that. So they seem to have eternal life and they seem to be unnaturally strong. Yes. Usually vampirism has been depicted in movies as some sort of animalistic plague that's spreading out of control that you mm. have to sort of try and get the master one to kill all of the ones that he's turned and stop it before it takes over a whole town and it's used as a, an allegory for some sort of disease so mm. it's been used in the 80s to reflect on the AIDS crisis and so on and so forth whereas in this movie they don't turn each other no. by biting each other and there doesn't seem to be like an animalistic lust for blood necessarily. It seems much more sensual. There's the scene where Ella is stroking the IV that's feeding blood into Frank and her nail grows on her thumb. There's the scene where she sees some of Frank's blood because I think he's taking anticoagulants because he's got leukaemia, I think. Mm. And he cuts himself and he's bleeding and there's this rag covered in his blood. And the way that she looks at it, she's hungry, but it's more sort of sensual. It's more like she's savouring it. It's not sort of animalistic and desperate. Yeah, I think that's more a reflection of her character, though. She seems much more controlled mm. with her vampirism, whereas her sister is much more sort of not careless, but a little bit just like, yeah, let's <laughs> kill some people and <laughs> suck some blood. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did. I did find their characters quite similar to the two characters in Ginger Snaps, mm. which is not a vampire movie; it's a werewolf movie. But um, they have a similar dynamic. Like one's a little bit more carefree. A little more sort of sexually awakened or um, liberated and the mm. other one's much more uh, reserved and careful. Yeah, and it's a mother and daughter relationship which changes the dynamic as well. Yeah, I kind of didn't... For some reason, when it flashed back, I didn't recognise Gemma Arterton as the flashback mother. I don't oh, know why okay. until like a, a considerable <laughs> amount of time. Uh, so I was still thinking, are they sisters? Are they just friends? But then, yeah, of course, mm. yeah, she is a mother. Yeah. But yeah, similar dynamic to Ginger Snaps, even though it is mother and daughter. And it, it is interesting to, to see that the daughter is a little bit more responsible. Yes. It's almost like the mother is the wayward child, isn't it? Mm, and yeah. she's trying to rein her in all the time and scolding her for killing people and so on. Very interesting dynamic, and it's one that suits the two actresses very well because Saoirse Ronan has always come across as an old soul. Mm. I think it has something to do with the fact that she is an only child. This is something that David Fincher mentioned when he was casting Gone Girl and he cast Rosamund Pike and he was looking for somebody who seemed very uh, self-sufficient and very mature and slightly strange. So he found Rosamund Pike, who is an only child, and mm. he said that people who grow up among adults rather than among siblings and other children are different. Right. And I think you can see that in Saoirse Ronan for sure. And whereas Gemma Arterton's always been quite playful, she starred in some St Trinian's movies, I think was one of the first things that she'd done. And I think she's always regarded as a bit of a sex pop because she's incredibly attractive. Yeah. And as a result, not taken as seriously as I think she deserves sometimes. Yeah. For some reason, her movies, I've only seen like the worst ones. So yeah. I've seen her in like Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters. And oh, God. <laughs> Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. Oh, like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have seen her in uh, The Voices, though, which is actually a really interesting movie. Oh. Got Ryan Reynolds in it. Mm. Um, so I did think Gemma Ashton was amazing in this, playing that character. It was kind of unpredictable what she was going to do. Yeah, it was. Yeah, she was very dangerous mm. and much more akin to the sort of vampirist character that you usually get in these films. True. Which is hinted at when they're watching the TV and you see a clip from the old Hammer, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, where your typical vixenish vampire woman is pinned onto a table and staked to death. Mm. She's all bosoms and teeth and yeah. snarling. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a bit of an illusion and a tongue-in-cheek reference, I think. Yeah, yeah. Talking about some of the other actors, yes, Caleb Landry-Jones, very interesting characters he always seems to play. I thought his character development was kind of strange, though, because mm. he was quite timid and nervous and introverted at the start, and then he just becomes almost your stereotypical broody teenager by the end. It was, I don't know, strange progression. Yeah, I think possibly because of the effect that Ella was having on him, I think he fell in love during uh. the course of the movie. And it's a fascinating relationship, isn't it? Because she's weighed down by this immortality and the fact that she has to kill people to stay alive. And here is a young man who's had the shadow of death hanging over him all of his life. Mm. So the two of them connect in a morbid way. <laughs> yes, yes. One thing I will say about Caleb Landry Jones's performance as Frank. I'm not quite sure where he's supposed to be from yeah. with that accent. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a walking tour of the entire English-speaking world. <laughs> well, I watched it with Hannah and she was like, is that a Boston accent? And then it was like slightly British at times and then just like a range of, yeah, I guess different. <laughs> yeah. Possibly British regional accents. I mean, he is the only American, right, in this movie? I think so, yes. And I think the way they justify it, there's a bit of dialogue in there where he talks about the fact that I think his parents are dual nationality or one parent is British and one parent is American. Right. And they've moved to the UK, he says, because the health service is free here. Well, I mean, it's not. You pay your taxes. Yeah, <laughs> it's not free. Yes. But... It's not based on a system that tries to profit from people's misery. So he's mm. an American kid who's been brought up here and for some reason has ended up with the weirdest accent <laughs> I have ever heard. Oh. I mean, it's not Irish. It's not Northern English. Yeah. It's got bits of all of that and it's all over the place. But I don't know. I've got a lot of time for Caleb Landry-Jones. I just... Whatever he creates, I just kind of take it on face value as yeah. that's who this character is. Yeah, I think it because he, he kind of commits to it. Yeah. Because you're you're too captivated by his aura of a character that you kind of yeah, it's forgivable yeah. that his accent is nondescript. It didn't ruin the movie for me. I still was really into his character mm. and also the themes that he uh, threw up. Yes, yes. Before we get into themes, I did want to mention Johnny Lee Miller. I didn't even recognise him. No, me neither. I yeah. forgot he was in the movie until the credits when I saw his name. Completely unrecognisable. Yeah, his acting. I'm floored by the, the range of characters. Yeah. I mean, compare him to in Hackers being the... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Not the greatest character in that. And then Train Spotting being Sick Boy. It's polar opposite characters, all three of them. I know. The many faces of Johnny Lee Miller. I've never seen him play a character like this before. And he is so repellent mm. to look at. But also, even his voice, he is completely different in this movie. And yes, I did not recognise him for three or four scenes and then suddenly went, shit, that's Johnny Lee Miller. <laughs> yeah. In one close-up, I think, but even his face is, I don't know, well done to him. It's a mm. fantastic performance. And yeah, you hate that guy, Captain Riven. He's not a nice guy. No. Yeah, he's he's a true villain. Yeah. I did want to talk about themes. Yes. Uh, we've, we've touched on a few of them already, but there is a, a sense of existentialism mm. and death. Yes. Sickness versus life and death. Mm. So, there, yeah, there is a lot of sickness in this movie and a lot of sort of attaining immortality and eternal life. Yes, and also 
whether eternal life is really something that you should envy or want. Mm. One of the things that I thought the film did really well is get across just the weight of time that bears down on them. Just something like, you know, that old thing of where you return back to a place you used to live mm. a decade ago and it's all completely changed. Well, they really hammer that home where Ella goes to this seaside town and she says to her mother, we've been here before and it's not this rundown, concrete-covered seaside resort. It's this unblemished beach where she remembers being a child sort of collecting shells. Mm. Just imagine being alive for 200 years and you go back and you see a whole town grow up and then become dilapidated and worn down. And mm. I don't know, just the environment made you feel like, oh, it must be what it's like to just live the same life for and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a sense of time just stretching out. And, and it was reflected in the, in the sort of pacing of the film. Like it was a slow going film mm. and there was a lot of sort of breathing room. There was a lot of stillness in, the, in many of the scenes, a lot of time for scenes to kind of settle in. Mm. It wasn't hugely edited and there were a lot of long takes and pauses and dialogue Going into a vampire genre film, you wouldn't expect that. Mm. I can see why people maybe going into it thinking, oh, it's going to be vampires killing, blah, blah, blah. But it's not like that at all. There's a lot of, yeah, stillness. Especially in Ella's character, something that Neil Jordan talked about was how Sersha completely inhabited this role and would create these moments of stillness mm. that were just captivating to watch. And that's the thing I find fascinating about it is it's a long movie. It's two hours. Uh, it's not hugely eventful, mm. no, it's although not. it does have a fairly strong through line and also peril and people chasing them and so on. But it does take its time to settle in and create a mood, which you don't see very often. And one of the things I heard the director mention was that they didn't test the movie oh, at all. Yeah, He and the editor, Tony Lawson, created the movie, the cut that they were happy with, and they just released it. That was it. Yeah, that was actually my impression of the film mm -hmm. once I watched it. It felt completely encapsulated as... Of intentional finished film. It didn't mm. feel like things were missing or things were added extra or like any reshoots or plot holes or studio intervention. It just felt very contained yeah. as a film. And it's, it's kind of refreshing mm. to see that. Yeah, to see a filmmaker's vision unblemished by looped lines of dialogue to clarify where somebody is yeah. going and why and all that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and, and, and it's mainly because it felt longer than it should have been mm. but in sort of a good way yeah a good i don't know 20 minutes could have been edited out of it and it still would have been a coherent film but i don't think it would have had the same effect and it would have felt chopped down i guess yeah i did find it funny that to become a vampire you had to go to an island yeah go into a, a little bit of a, a cave <laughs> mm. and be confronted by Yourself. Yes. And then just swarm of birds, the water turns to blood, you're a vampire. Yes. Yeah. It's different, isn't it? It gives it much more of a sense of ritual and mystery. It's, yeah. You know, it's like one of these things where you go to Kong's Island, you know, you have to go on a voyage and a quest for the Golden Fleece or whatever. It's on this one island in this cave. Mm. You see, uh, I think it's the devil or something who takes on your appearance and says something incredibly profound and then stabs you in the neck with a yeah. fingernail, a thumbnail rather, and uh, sucks your blood and then you emerge reborn to yes. lie back on a waterfall that turns to blood. And yes. It's visually striking, mm. quite eerie, yeah. unique. I, I haven't seen a vampire movie do that before. No, 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 no. And, and to me, it was actually the most gothic part of the mm. movie. It was so theatrical and, yeah, like you said, striking the imagery of the waterfalls behind the shrine turning to blood and, oh, that's one for, you know, the movie poster. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and I think it was, actually. I'm sure it was included in trailers and mm. so on. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, as another theme we should touch on, that it is a boys' club 
the what is it the long thumbnail of justice or whatever it is <laughs> the pointed nail of justice. justice yeah it's just ridiculous <laughs> and clara laughs at them when they mention <laughs> what they call themselves mm. but she has stolen her opportunity to live forever and when she's asked how will you use this gift she says to punish those who prey on the weak to curb the power of men mm. and this you know she has very good reason for this she was forced into prostitution by riven at a very young age and he tracked down her own daughter and defiled her even though she took great pains to give her a new life and set her up in an orphanage so she'd have a better chance and pay for her upbringing so she has very good reason to feel the way that she does and the men just seem determined i think well they'll put up with her being in the club but when she turns her own daughter into a vampire too they think oh no hang on this is just going to spread we've got to stamp these women out yes but they seem to have absolutely no standards for the men they include in their boys club because riven is repellent he doesn't yeah. have a single redeeming feature i didn't understand that to be honest no because yeah sam riley's character so the good soldier that is nice to Clara hmm. wants Johnny Lee Miller's character to be a bit what? Like he knows how disgusting he is. After he left him for dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like it just I didn't understand that to be honest. I don't know. It feels like a comment on the way that these all boys clubs work. I mean, we have a strong tradition of it here in the UK. They all end up being prime minister. <laughs> it's not really the best people that end up in these exclusive clubs. It's just an in-group, a clique of people that look after each other, even to the point of immortality, even when they're awful, mm. awful people. And you know they are. So I, I felt that it was a comment on that and I thought that Clara's crusade against them and any other man that prostitutes a woman it gave Clara a redeeming feature because she could easily have been the wild one that was killing anybody and everybody, but she wasn't really. She always killed for good reason, pretty much. Mm, yeah, I did like both Clara and Ella as characters, as strong female characters mm. and kind of being very much in control of mm. any situation and the men around them being quite, I guess, mesmerised by them, like sort of cast in a spell. I did notice as well that all the kills from Clara and Ella are all men um, as well. I think there's a woman in the hospital. Is it a woman? I think it is a woman. I thought it was a man. I think it's a woman in right. the hospital. Okay. Ah. Yeah. It was good just to see like strong female characters. They were just strong no matter what. Yeah. I hate it when you watch a movie where there are strong female character, but then the right man comes along and mm. they fall head over heels. Like even Ella with Frank, she's still quite reluctant and hesitant. She is because she knows what this will mean for him. Mm. And she comes to his rescue at the end. It's another great pair of characters. We've been on a good run with this recently with Night of the Comet Humphrey. Yeah, so. yeah, we have. Yeah. yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you discover on a remote island today? Well, this one is for you uh, Star Wars geeks out there. Uh, the Ooh. Vampire Transformation Shrine location uh, for this movie was filmed on Skellig Michael off the Irish coast and is the same location as uh, Luke Skywalker's refuge in Star Wars uh, Force Awakens and Last Jedi. Oh, wow. So that's the place where he milks that alien and drinks yep. the blue milk. That's it. <laughs> that's it. It's also where you become a vampire. Apparently. <laughs> wow, he didn't discover that hut, did he? No. <laughs> <laughs> Could have changed the whole franchise. Oh, yeah. Possibly for the better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Vampires in Star Wars. Yes, please. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> Yeah. Also, interestingly, they chose that location after scouring the entire coast of Ireland or something. Oh. And then they came back and said to the director, here's the island. It's perfect. And the director said, that's literally right in front of my house. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. so it was convenient for him, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it was. My fascinating piece of trivia is that Neil Jordan, when he was growing up, every day he used to ride past Bram Stoker's house. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, and therefore pretty much the creator of the uh, genre pretty much as we know it. So, huh. yes. There we go. There is a, a deep vampire connection to yeah. Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our trivia. Yes. One thing I would like to talk about is how the film looks. The cinematographer of this movie is Sean Bobbitt, who has worked on a lot of Steve McQueen movies, 12 Years a Slave, for example, and recently Judas and the Black Messiah, for which oh, he was yes. nominated for Best Cinematography Oscar and BAFTA. And he's currently filming the Marvel movie, The Marvels, for Nia DaCosta. Oh. I think particularly the coloured design in this movie, I think is incredibly beautiful and quite pointed. There's this use of a very particular shade of blue and a very particular shade of red in a lot of scenes all the way through. And it mm. just, it looks stunning. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's quite a marvel that he made what you normally would describe as shitty Britain mm. <laughs> look quite beautiful. Like it looks yeah. spectacular. Like some of those scenes, especially all those beach scenes and yeah. the sunset and yeah, great looking film it is for such a small budget and with those locations as well it's visually incredibly rich the orphanage door is a particular blue and the girls are all wearing these dark red robes and the blue netting and scaffolding outside byzantium and the red and blue storefronts and lights in the background that are blurred they're all red and blue mm. it's as though they've deliberately removed every instance of green and yellow either on the set or in post when they're colour timing the movie. Mm. And all of it brings out Saoirse Ronan's incredibly blue eyes as well. Yeah, Because yeah. she's wearing a combination of blue and red, a blue jacket and a red hoodie. And mm. when you suddenly realise it, you just start seeing it everywhere. Like even the scene on the beach where she's talking to Frank and there's a boat behind them and it's got the same combination of red and blue on it. And it's, I really appreciated the look of the film. I thought it was beautiful. Yes. And even in certain scenes where it did actually have quite a gritty quality as well, especially the first opening scene in the strip club and then on that chase scene through the streets, it looked really British. Like it didn't look like a film set. It looked like an actual street. Mm. And it reminded me a little bit of um, Under the Skin yeah. where they actually did film the real public on a real completely un altered street mm. and that sense of realism and, and the same at the end as well that very climactic scene it just felt dirty yeah in a good way but still very uh, deliberate i guess yeah it does it still looks designed even though it's making use of a real location on a low budget so mm. hats off to neil jordan and sean bobbitt i don't know how they did it but they made a beautiful movie that still looks very real and believable so yeah yeah <laughs> and in terms of editing as well the two only action scenes in the whole movie were gripping mm. that chase scene mm. when that ended i just exclaimed and that's how you edit a chase scene mm. you could see everything it felt fluid and full of suspense and action and the stunts amazing the way she mm. falls through the skylight <laughs> i did not expect that no. and then you know <laughs> concluded by that very very gory gruesome decapitation mm. like phew, that's <laughs> bravo <laughs> yeah and the car chase at the end where clara jumps onto the bonnet of the car and yeah. is clinging onto it while they're screeching around I did not expect her to do that. It was a real shock. And because the film has been so measured and so intensely moody for the whole mm. time, when it's suddenly broken by this kineticism, it hits all the harder. It's a real shock. And yeah, it really does. Yeah. yeah. And then that, that, you know, when Clara almost gets beheaded, mm. oh, 
the amount of tension and and I was really on the edge of my seat at that point. Yeah, I had a very strong inkling of how it was going to turn out, but still, yeah. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> and the music by Javier Navarrete, who we've come across before scoring a Joe Dante movie, The Hole. Yes. Uh, in yes. that case, trying to sound like Jerry Goldsmith as much as he could because that's who Joe had worked with the most. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. one, again, not a lot of space for Javier Navarrete to be terribly creative in terms of creating new themes because a lot of the music is based around two existing pieces of music. Oh, are they? Yeah. So the Coventry Carol, the choir-driven lullaby that you hear, that's a Christmas standard. Uh-huh. It's written from the perspective of the mothers of the doomed children in the Christmas story. So, you know, King Herod says, kill all the newborn boys. Okay. Yeah, so it's about the massacre of the innocents and it's sung from the perspective of the mothers and takes the form of a lullaby sung to doomed children. I thought, well, in terms of a lyrical representation of the relationship between Clara's mother and, and Ella as yeah. the daughter, I thought, yes, that's a perfect choice. Uh-huh. And then, of course, there's the piano piece that uh, Saoirse had to learn for this movie over the course of three months, practising every day, which is uh, Beethoven's third piano sonata. So you have the middle section of the second movement here, the adagio, which apparently contains numerous examples of romanticism and is considered a prelude to Beethoven's later sonatas, like the Moonlight Sonata, which was his 14th. So Javier Navarrete is sort of playing with those two themes and interpolating them sometimes and creating grand moments out of them and then very quiet, introspective moments out Mm. of them. And I thought he did a fantastic job with it, frankly. Mm, Yeah, yeah. There was sort of ethereal qualities of music. Like Mm. some of it almost sounded like synths, but then there was like a lot of solo violin and then, yeah, like you said, choral stuff. Um, There was even a part with definitely synthesizers and programmed drums in one scene. Yeah. But it didn't seem out of place. It didn't seem like they were just trying to, you know, update the score or anything. Yeah. Yeah, Everything just felt right with the music. I wouldn't say it really stood out to me, No, but it wasn't just moody tones at the same time. No. I mean, I've listened to it separately from the film since then, and I, I'm really enjoying listening to it, and particularly the uh-huh. Beethoven sonata, the piano piece that Ella is playing throughout the movie, is very beautiful and quite striking. I have to say, though, I hate it <laughs> when Claire de Lune pops up in a film, because oh. it's just... <laughs> Oh, come on. It's like the most overused (laughs) piano piece ever. It's just, it's in everything. Stop using it. We don't need it anymore. No. <laughs> it just seems like a cliche. That and Packerbell's Canon, I would agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, Packerbell's Canon is like pretty much the second choice for weddings. Mm. Like that's got sort of a tradition to it. But come on, stop using Clear to Loot. <laughs> yeah. Especially when clearly with a bit of research, you can find another piece like the third piano sonata that's fascinating and beautiful and serves your movie well as it does here. So mm. step away <laughs> from the Claire. <laughs> Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Hey, hey, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite immortal blood-drenched parts of the film in a number of decapitating categories. Does that make sense? I don't know. (laughs) Does it ever? Best quote. So my favourite quote, Conrad, you actually mentioned it before we started recording, but it's one of those (laughs) profound quotes that is said in the vampire shrine cave location. It's when Clara attains her immortality as a vampire. She is killed by herself in the shrine and her doppelganger uh, says to her, this is the end. And she asks, of what and her twin says of time (laughs) and then she gets stabbed and dies and all the birds fly out and it 
It's all bloody and <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, but you do get to meet your doppelganger who then says something profound mm. because it happens to every character. It does, it does. <laughs> what was your favourite quote? My favourite quote comes from Darville when he's talking to Riven who left him for dead on the battlefield and <laughs> even stole from his quote-unquote corpse but luckily he turned into a vampire and got to come back and Riven says to him, forgive me, forgive me and Darville says, forgiveness is a Christian value. My gods are older. Oh. Oh. Best hair or costume? There's something in the movie that I have a particular foible for. Okay. Frank is wearing a very fine waistcoat oh, in this movie. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It has, uh, it's black with these dark blue diamonds, and this plus the sort of voluminous shirts he wears and tight jeans make him look like a dandy from years of old, like a Byronesque poet with a wasting disease because he's opium addicted. He fits right in. I mean, he's just dying to be turned into a vampire. Yeah, <laughs> I did find that scene a bit odd. Up until that point, he seemed quite modern, and then suddenly he he just looks like a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's kind of rehearsing for the role, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah. Caleb Landry Jones looks great in that outfit. Mm, mm. It's the kind of thing I wore in the nineties. Oh enough. wow! <laughs> maybe <laughs> a career path for you, Conrad. <laughs> yeah, possibly. <laughs> I'm just looking for my Saoirse. Yes. Or that Irish cave on yes. an island. <laughs> yeah. What about you for hair or costume? Well, I, I think it's the most striking part of the movie, but the sort of red riding hood. Cardigan, jacket, coat that uh, Saoirse wears. Yeah, it's mm. it's very striking. Similar to the, the character that we saw in, in Hard Candy as well. Yeah. I mean, it, it's essentially a fairy tale, so it makes sense. It does, and it's something that Neil Jordan is very good at, fairy tales. He started with a company of wolves with a story about Red Riding Hood of that course. was turned on its head. Of course. So, yeah, it all makes sense. It all comes back full circle. <laughs> It does. <laughs> Most 2010s moment. There wasn't a huge amount of very iconic 2010s parts of this film, apart from mm -hmm. the fact that the two main characters were strong female characters, but especially young. And this type of character did become quite popular in the 2010s. I've got written down, I mean, the Harry Potter series uh, became like that, and... Uh, the host, Divergent, Hunger Games, uh, pretty much every movie that Chloe Grace Moritz is in, uh, Let Me In, <laughs> Kick-Ass, Carrie, like this kind of young, teenage, strong feminine character was was very popular around that time. Mm -hmm. And especially yeah. in, in more genre films, so fantasy and horror and sci-fi. Yeah, that's very true, actually. I hadn't noticed that, but it's very true. What did you have? Uh, for me, it was more about the fact that horror was making a resurgence in the 2010s. Oh. I think in the 90s, it turned into a postmodern roller coaster ride and a bit fun. And in the noughties, it seemed to be more about remakes all of the time, particularly of 70s and 80s franchises. You got all yeah. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all the Platinum Dune stuff. Yeah, a lot of found footage as well around that time too. Oh, yeah, exactly. And then all of a sudden in the 2010s, you're getting things like Get Out and Us and Hereditary and Midsommar. And you're getting original, non-franchise, non-remake storytelling. And I think Byzantium fits really nicely into mm. that trend. Favourite scene! My favourite scenes are the turning scenes, especially Saoirse Ronan's, but mm. I like Clara's as well. Because it's on an island, you have that sense of going on a quest to get something special, and it's a secret, and you need a map to get there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not sort of that vampirism spreading like a disease and something grotty. It's something to be sought out and attained for the very special few and mm -hmm. and all it entails is going into a cave with sort of like a bat cave like the dark night with s swirling flocks of something mm. and then you 
meet, I think it's the devil. They call him the oldest saint, which I guess is the devil. I'm not sure, but whatever it is, it appears as your doppelganger says something profound, kills you. And then when you come out, you're in like this gothic shampoo commercial, <laughs> sort of languishing on the rocks as the water turns blood red as yeah. it cascades down the sides of the, the island. It's I don't know, it's just so rich and theatrical and visually marvellous and creepy and not at all what I was expecting and I've never seen anything like it, mm. so I really enjoyed it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> what was your favourite scene? Oh, I mean, obviously that's the most striking, I would say, but I really did yeah. like the scene with Frank uh, when he um, has an accident. Oh, yeah. And he falls off his bike with Ella and he's cut his wrist and then you find out that he's, you know, taking anti-clotting medication so his, his blood just pours out of him and it's just yeah. really intense and there's no score in that scene. It's just him stumbling down the road with this bloody arm uh, and then when he reaches his house and he drops the bloody cloth on the ground and Ella's sort of confronted with the hunger of blood, then it turns into, into this sort of otherworldly scene with everything in slow motion, all the dialogues all echoey and muffled, and then the score takes over and it, like time slows down as Ella's overwhelmed by her bloodlust mm. and it's just a really well-constructed scene that had a lot of sort of tension and um sort of urgency to it really liked it yeah most cliche horror moment the inclusion of sex in in vampire movies is is kind mm. of a a must like you have to have some sort of lust involved but it, it's almost not glorified in this movie like for clara it's just a job and for ella she she doesn't actually have sex they, they only kiss no. like once uh so yeah it kind of doesn't go full vampire mm. sex but uh it's still there, I guess. Yeah. So how about you? What was your cliche for this film? My cliche for this film is the fact that there is a finale in a fairground, which I think um, okay. <laughs> is somewhat of a cliche for a genre movie that you end up at a fairground. But I think it's typical of this movie that it's a rundown fairground. It's closed. They don't end up in a hall of mirrors. They don't end up on the big wheel and falling off it. It's fairly low key. And that isn't the main reason for the scene so it's just sort of there and symbolic of the degradation over time more mm, than anything mm. else so it's not so much of a cliche they kind of like the vampire or they turn it on its head a little bit so but still it ends in a fairground yeah <laughs> best special effect i think we're going to both pick the same one here isn't it the juicy beheading right at the beginning of oh the yeah yeah i actually was gonna pick the growing nail i mean it's simple it's very well done it's very yeah. simple and i guess cgi but you can't really tell mm. i don't know it was very simple effective it didn't look silly no, yeah completely believable but i mean yeah the beheadings though Oh, yeah, that first beheading, just, I don't know, I couldn't get past that. It was just so surprising and yeah, shocking exactly. and yeah. completely believable and, and disgusting. Yeah. So it stayed with me. So that stays as my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> favourite sound effect. My pick for sound is actually more of a score element uh, so it's every okay. time ella had had sensual moments with with blood mm. there was a sound that almost sounded like cicadas or crickets like a kind of a high hissy rattly sound um that that uh. sort of appeared every time and, and i think it was a score element but it, it made every scene with that in it much more ethereal, much more otherworldly, and like she was getting drawn into her hunger. Mm. The only thing I spotted was the neck break. Poor Morag, the school oh, teacher, who yes. ends up getting her neck broken for no reason right at the end of the movie by that sort of bald, lurchy kind of guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that was quite a nice neck break because it did actually sound bony and clunky rather than like a stick of celery and crisp. It sounded quite sort of, ugh, yeah, horrible. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and, and so just almost offhanded. Mm. 
as a kill. Yeah. Just no thought involved. Yeah, she was making a noise because she was panicking. So mm. he breaks her neck and says, I hate these shrieking women. Yeah. I think, well, that's the whole problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most funniest moment. Yeah, the film isn't hilariously funny. Sir Ronan was saying that when they held the first screening, the premiere, that people were laughing because of Neil Jordan's little streak of black comedy that he can't help but put into things. But I need, I didn't see a lot of it in this no, movie, to be no. honest. Did you find anything? The, <laughs> this was completely unintentionally funny, surely. Right. But <laughs> the emergence of that massive sword from the boot of Darvel's car. I mean, how do you conceal something like that? I know. It's how does huge. he get it through customs when he travels from one country to another? I mean, there's no way you're getting that on a plane. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's a curved, like, almost like a cutlass um, from Byzantian times, they, they say. yeah. yeah. Cool. I, I just laughed at that because it was just like, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> I know. The only scene that really made me laugh came from Clara. And again, it just comes from the script because the script is so wonderful. And uh, it's when she's talking to Frank on his uh, windowsill. And she says, I must say, you are Ellie's type. Earnest, clueless, but sexy as a pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> what a compliment. <laughs> I know. I've I've never heard that phrase before, but it's perfect. I completely get exactly what she means. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our Mooblings. Yeah. Hi, this is Jonathan McIntosh of Pop Culture Detective Agency, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Hey, it's the crucial part of the podcast, final verdict time. Should Byzantium be unleashed in all its bloodthirsty glory on the world to be appreciated by the masses, or should it be beheaded, drained of blood, set fire, and plunged into the oubliette to be forgotten forever? Conrad, Byzantium. Yes, well, Byzantium, never heard of it, never seen it before, really enjoyed it, I have to say, not only because it's a vampire movie, but it just didn't retread all the old tropes, didn't venture into sort of mortgage teenage sparkly territory <laughs> either. It was... a yeah. Beautiful film. The music was gorgeous. Saoirse Ronan and Gemma Arterton are astonishingly good in it. And despite his questionable accent, mm-hmm. so is Caleb Landry-Jones. And it just has such a lovely, languid pace. So you can really settle into it and experience it and also get a sense of what it's like to experience time on the scale that Ella's character does. So I thought it was a beautiful, fascinating, compelling, rich movie that I'd enjoy watching again. So I would recommend it myself, definitely. I I think it's sad that it's in the oubliette. I want it out there. So what did you think? Yeah, I I was very surprised by this movie. I thought it was, I mean, especially by that first scene, I thought, oh, what what are we getting into? Is this going to be a blood fest of... (laughs) <laughs> murder but I mean th- yes there was some murder in it but it, it was much more deliberate in its storytelling and it took its time and I really appreciate a film that is mm. how it was supposed to be it was intended to be this way like wholeheartedly by the director and all the um, the crew involved it felt complete And that's really nice to see in a movie. Uh, Acting, phenomenal. Cinematography, stunning. Great score. I wouldn't recommend this to the usual vampire fan. It's not that type Mm. of movie. It's much more of a drama. It's much more complex in its characters and its themes. It's not really even a vampire movie, even though it really is. And it does have some Mm. nods to gothic horror, which was nice. You don't really see that in vampire movies these days. So, yes, I would really really recommend it to people that have sort of patience for a drama Mm. 
Yeah, it's somewhere in between Interview with a Vampire and Let the Right One In. It's much more of a contemplative, reflective mm, exactly. movie that creates a, a, a very deliberate mood. And yes, yes. as you say, it's, it's so nice to see something that is the creation of the artists and not a movie that's been created by test audiences and committees. Yes, or studios, you know. Mm. So Byzantium, off you go. Oh, yes. You truly are a wonder. Ah, nice to see another one flee the coop. Mm, so what are we doing next time, Conrad? Well, next time we are making a complete shift in terms of time period, country, yes. <laughs> genre. Well, the genre is still the same. So we're dealing with witches rather than vampires this time. And we'll be watching something in Russian language for the very first time, watching the 1967 horror film... V. Oh, I've not heard of this. No. Nor have I seen a Russian 60s movie ever. <laughs> and I'm probably not even pronouncing correctly. It might be Vi. Oh. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway. Directed by Konstantin Yershov and Georgi Kropashev. Um, yeah, starring Leonid Karevalov. Yeah, I'm not going to know any of these people. This is going to be a complete journey of discovery for us. Yes, I mean, for for listeners out there, how do, how do you spell the title? V-I-Y. Okay. Yeah. And it is out there on streaming and remastered on Blu-ray if you want to check it out. So, But it'll be good to get into this era of movie making and this country's movie making because we've never experienced something from Russia before. Mm, mm. Uh, Russian cinema is still an enigma to me. I've, I've barely mm. seen any and it's always quite different. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I've just seen a, a, the odd Tarkovsky movie and that's it. Mm. So this will be fascinating. Mm. And we will be helped by a guest? We will. We will be helped by someone who will be probably be more well-researched than we will be. So really looking forward to hearing what they have to say yes. about the movie too. Yes. Yeah. And if you want to look forward to our future episodes, keep up to date with our socials. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. Yes, you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yeah, we love your emails, so please send them in. Yes, and if you would like to support us, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on future films for us to cover in episodes. And for $5, you get access to exclusive minisodes where we review new films. Mm, yes, we have a minisode coming out on the film Oxygen. Yeah, Alexandra Aja's new movie, so that should be interesting. Mm, yes, yes, yes. And if you haven't already, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you are listening to us on. Indeed, yes. We need the ego boost. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't know not the movie Juliet. It is still the fact that the day you are born is the day you're most likely to be murdered.